We are here at the absolutely beautiful uh, St. Louis Scottish Rite Cathedral on Lindell Street. We are in the auditorium, and I'm definitely going to turn the camera around when we're done and take some shots of this absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous space. But we're here with Brett Akers. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So this is part of the Square and Compass, I guess, Masonic road trip. I've had the chance to do a few things here in St. Louis, including uh, yesterday, I got to see you at Overland uh, Occidental. So let's start with that in general. Uh, not just Scottish Rite, but Freemasonry in uh, St. Louis. How has it been going, uh, you know, returning back to meetings after, um, you know, any delays with COVID? It seemed like yesterday's event was very well attended the uh, officers' training. So are you finding that you're getting back into the swing of things? Uh, Masons are meeting pretty regularly again? Pretty much, but we're still just on the end of the COVID ordeal. And uh, my lodge in particular, there's really been no change from the time we shut down to when we started back up. Uh, we've not had any, well, maybe one or two visitors, but it's pretty much just been the officers. And how have you found getting back into the, the swing of ritual work? I mean, it's funny, you know, yesterday's was all about ritual work and opening and closings. You know, my biggest concern, and I've mentioned this in a few of my emails to my brethren, uh, you know, is making sure to keep up practicing because we're all going to be rusty returning. Uh, just have you found people are getting back into the swing of things pretty easily? Or? Yeah, you could definitely tell the first couple of meetings they hadn't studied in the year that they were off, but... Uh... They, they picked it right back up and were ready to go. Now, what you saw yesterday was new officer training. So those guys probably have never done those parts before, and they were all pretty pretty bad. But that's why we have the training. So Nothing's wrong with being bad in training, no, right? That's, not at all. That's when you're supposed to be bad. The, you know, now moving on to this amazing building in particular, uh, can you tell us a bit about, you know, where we're meeting, the history of, of the building, and also uh, your position here? My position is the executive secretary, so it's pretty much my job on the day-to-day -day operations of the building and uh, really to make sure it doesn't fall down around us and uh, whatever all that entails. Uh, we have very few employees. We just don't have the financial means to have enough employees to really keep up a $200,000 square foot building, but we do the best we can with what we have. Uh, as far as the history of the building, this is actually the fifth house that we've been in in St. Louis. I believe Scottish Rite came to St. Louis about 1873. Uh, first they met in like a doctor's office and a lawyer's office and a doctor's house and a church and then uh, early 1900s, they decided they needed a bigger facility because they had about 7,800 members, so they decided to build this magnificent building. Uh, they started building around, well, I think they started looking for property around 1918. Uh, fast forward to 1923-24, this building was dedicated in 1924. So it's been our house for almost 100 years now. And the, 
you know, I, I talked about this uh, offline. In the the layout of it and so much of it reminds me of Hamilton and Bay City and, and other cathedrals. Um, I guess, you know, over the, the years, um, have you had a lot of uh, visitors come through, people from, you know, either Masons or Scottish Rite in particular, and what have they, they said about the building and, and thought of it? Oh, everybody just loves it. It's one of the largest Masonic buildings in North America. Uh, yeah, we get visitors all the time. Some people, like yourself, call ahead, uh, but a lot of people will just knock on the door and say, hey, I'm visiting from out of town, just wanted to see if you guys were open. We'll stop whatever we're doing and give them a tour. Nobody's ever been turned away for a tour, so uh, we do have a lot of visitors from out of town. And uh, I would love to learn more. I, you know, I, I was here a couple of days ago for Master Craftsman classes, and they did mention in particular the uh, the backdrops, which we can see, and I'll throw a picture up <laughs> uh, so the people watching can see. Uh, but these backdrops are absolutely gorgeous, and they're huge. Uh, and I understand there's a really cool bit of history to them. The, um, the, I guess they had to be specially made because they're so big? Well, depends on who you talk to as to what story you get. Uh, the story that I know, when the building was being built uh, right at the end of getting ready to dedicate it, there was actually a barge headed to another town with these backdrops on it. And while these backdrops were on the barge, the order got canceled and they happened to be docked downtown St. Louis. Uh, so they heard that we were building the cathedral here and came by and said, hey, by any chance? And we said, sure, we bought them right there on the spot. That's the story I've gotten, but there may be five other stories. So it's a pretty no cool story. Telling, no telling exactly which one is true, but uh, originally there was about 150, and those are all hand-painted backdrops on canvas. Uh, now, after a hundred years, there's been some deterioration of them, and we probably still have in the ballpark of about a hundred of them that are still in use, and we use them at our degree work. And uh, tell us a bit about uh, the organ. I understood there was an interesting story uh, about that. Apparently when it was originally ordered, uh, the order didn't go through due to um, a, a well-known historical uh, dispute, but uh, it's over there now, and yeah, it's, it's a very cool little spot, too, the, the kind of choir's chamber with the organ. Uh, it is an absolutely magnificent organ. I've never seen one quite like it in a Masonic building. Um, I don't remember how many pipes there are, but I want to say it's around 3,700. So the pipes are arranged in three different sections here in the auditorium. Uh, the main set over there behind the organ. There's antiphonals over here in this corner because there used to be an orchestra on that side, so the antiphonals would stay in beat with the orchestra. And then right up above us is the echo chamber, which most of those pipes you don't really hear, you feel. Uh, the, the organ was built specifically for this room, so the sound is just second to none, uh, and it's just a beautiful instrument. 
it was in disrepair for quite a while, and we had gotten a bid of about a quarter of a million dollars to get it back up and running, and we simply didn't have that kind of money, so we wound up buying an Allen organ, which was great. Uh, but then the St. Louis Theater Organ Society here in St. Louis heard that we had it in here, and they just stopped by one day for a tour. And they said, we understand it doesn't work, but we'd still like to see what you have. So they came in, took a look, and the guy that was in charge, uh, he said, you ever think about getting this back up and running? We said, well, we'd love to, but it's just out of our price range. And he said, well, if I had the volunteer help, could you pay for the part? And it wound up, wound up costing us right at $25,000 to get it back up and running, fully functional. Sounded like the first day it was put in here. So, thanks to them, we have an operating organ. How, uh, you know, that brings up a really good point. And it's something I've always tried to emphasize with the, the Square and Compass podcast and the Windsor Masonic Temple. Um, you know, a, a Masonic Temple or a, a Scottish Rite Cathedral, York Rite, whatever it is, right? They, they are Masonic homes, um, first and foremost, but they can also be uh, community homes. You know, they're, they're, they're places where you have dances and, you know, I, I understand that, you know, the, the U.S. Army was using this, this building when it was first, first built. Uh, and in the Windsor Masonic Temple, right, you have so many people have had weddings, dances, proms, vaccination clinics, right, which is on everybody's mind now. The, the polio vaccine was administered at, at the Windsor Masonic Temple. And, you know, you're bringing up the St. Louis um, uh, organ, right? The, the, I guess just, you know, I'm sure that this is a very important building and it should be for any, you know, Scottish Rite Masons in St. Louis, but this also seems like just an important building for St. Louis itself, for the community. Um, you know, I'm sure many people who aren't Masons or have no connection to the craft still have a lot of fond memories of this place, such as, you know, even, even the organ society. Uh, do you, you know, rent this building out a lot? Is it used a lot by the community? And, and historically, you know, I understand, for example, the, the military connection for this building. We do rent out the building quite a bit, uh, number one, just to pay our bills. But, uh, you know, number two, in the springtime, we do a lot of dance shows in here uh, where they do regional competitions. Uh, we have the United States Air Force Band come in and do a holiday concert almost every December. Of course, we missed last year, but uh, they come in with about a 40-piece orchestra and just put on a free show. There's absolutely no charge. Uh, we'll get about 800 people on the first night, about 15 or 1600 people on the second night. Uh, so a lot of the community, now a lot of that crowd is Masons, but uh, a lot of it is just their friends, families, people that have heard about the United States Air Force Band. Uh, so yeah, we do have a lot of public events in here. I'm sure when it was dedicated in 1924, they never dreamt of what we're doing today. Uh, it certainly wasn't built for public access. It, you can tell it was built for private use, uh, which is unbelievable thinking back that far, a 200,000 square foot building being built for 
just us. Uh, but we have had to adapt to times. And uh, I love having the public in here because they will walk in and just they'll be in awe as soon as they walk in the door. And to me, this is just my house. I come here every day. I love the place. I mean, it's it's part of who I am. I've I've grown up in this building. I I joined DMLA when in uh, 1978, so I've been coming in this building ever since then. So it's always been a part of who I am. Yeah, and I think you know I've I've always believed that that you know a, a place is often as important as as the people like the, the places and it doesn't have to be grand and you know certainly this is an example of a, a grand building and a beautiful building but you know even if somebody's masonic lodge is you know uh, uh you know uh, i've been to ones that are farmhouses i've been to ones that you know rent out a space above a, a post office or whatever it might be um, but you know every place has its own character and and you know it, the building can add so much to a Masonic experience and, and a person's experience. You said you, you started coming here in 1978. Mm -hmm. um, what type of, of uh, changes have you seen? Like in 1978, was the building open to the public then? Have you seen an increase or decrease in, in people visiting and rentals and things like that? There has definitely been an increase. I mean, in 1978, I was 13 years old, so I really couldn't tell you about the business end of the Scottish Rite back then. Uh, uh, but as you know, the Scottish Rite uh, in Kansas City, Missouri, are the ones that founded uh, DMLA International. So the Scottish Rite has always played an important role in the youth uh, groups of our organization be it DMLA, Job's Daughters, Rambos for Girls. So they would host parties here or dances or uh, they'd let us come in and do our initiations on the stage, which was really cool. So uh, Scottish Rite has always, like I said before, played a huge part in my life. So, And uh, the... I'm trying to think of... So, so when, when you are bringing in, in the public or when the public is approaching you, do you find, especially for, for tours or just of interest, um, are there any any uh, patterns you see? Do you find, for example, a lot of people who are interested in history, architecture, or is it just kind of it's just uh, tourists in general? Um, does anybody comment on anything in particular that they love? I'm sure this room is often remarked upon by the, the public. Yeah, I mean, this, this room really is pretty magnificent for being just used by the Masons for their degree work. Um, as far as who comes through the building to tour, it's a wide variety. Uh, if you try to nail it down to one thing in particular, I will just about guarantee you everybody has told me that their grandfather or great-grandfather was a Mason. Uh, they've passed by this building for 15 years and never knew what was inside of it and just all of a sudden one day decided to stop. Uh, otherwise, it may be a guy that just joined a lodge in another state and he was visiting here in St. Louis and just wanted to stop by. So I would say 90 times out of 100, there's a Masonic connection as to why they're stopping by for a tour. 
and that's certainly what we see in Windsor and a lot of places. And that's as good a reason as any, right? That Masonic connection, wanting to, um, you know, wanting to to reconnect, especially if the the father grandfather passed away, to be at a place where they were and would have had good memories. Um, it, it does do, do they then like? Do you guys also have have records? Are you able to mm -hmm. if somebody comes up and you know? My grandfather, John Smith, was amazing here. Are you able to, to kind of find information about him? Uh, I probably get requests like that once or twice a month. Typically, an email or a phone call, somebody will find our number and uh, just ask me, hey, was my grandpa a mason there? And depending on how far back it goes, we actually have little file cards on everybody that's ever joined here. Uh, I've got records going back into the 1800s that I can look up on the file card, and most of them are pretty accurate and at least give a little snapshot of who they were back then. It's not the whole story, but it's part of the story. I, I mean, I, I love stuff like that. I, I've done a few um, through Square and Compass, you know, a, a few packages where I'm able to, you know, put together a, like a brief Masonic history and then you know, take some photocopies uh, of the minutes. I don't think anybody from 1950, 55 is going to be concerned about privacy if, uh, right. you know, you find those those original minutes of, you know, so-and-so joined. Um, now, going back to to Freemasonry, more in, in general, um, you know, as... We're moving forward. Yesterday, they talked a lot about upcoming installations. Um, is there anything in coming up in St. Louis, especially because, and this is another reason I'm so happy to be here this year, right? This is the 200th anniversary of Freemasonry in Missouri. Um, has Grand Lodge organized any special events? Is, is Scottish Rite involved with it at all? Uh, just what does it feel like to, to be part of, you know, an organization that is 200 years old as of uh, 2021? Well, as far as I'm concerned, the organization is as old as I am, because uh, this is what I know of it. Uh, the Grand Lodge, yes, they have been putting on just a phenomenal series of lectures uh, for the bicentennial year. Uh, we have a wonderful Grand Lodge. All of our Grand Lodge officers are just really keyed in to all of our membership across the state of Missouri. Uh, it, it's really fun to watch these guys work. I've grown up with most of them, uh, so I have a personal connection with a lot of our grandmasters and the Grand Lodge line. Um, and I think they do an amazing job for the state of Missouri. And those lectures are online. You're saying so they're they're available to to you know any Mason mm -hmm. or I guess anybody who's interested. Um, you know they're they're available through the Grand Lodge website. I believe if you just go to momason.org, uh, you will find a link to the ones that have been done so far. Now, we are in Missouri. I got to ask you, because no one has, has been able to tell me yet. Uh, it's called the Show Me State. You're, you're a Missourian? Mm -hmm. So where does, where does Show Me come from? Because I've been very curious where the state, state motto. Well, for me, it's... We like to have things proven to us. We don't just take it at its word. Uh, 
I think that's kind of where it came from. I mean, by the time you made it from the East Coast to the Midwest, you've already gone through a big old journey, so you have that life experience and just, I'm not going to take it to word. You got to prove it to me, and I think that's where the Show Me State comes from. Is that was that the is that the history of Missouri? Was it like settlers from the east coming down this way? Well, I think the main uh, draw to Missouri was St. Louis originally because we were on the river, and it was just a great port, and it built up so quickly just downtown St. Louis. And then I think it spread from there. But, uh, yeah, our original state capital was in St. Louis. And then moved out to Jeff City. Or, yeah, Jeff City. Uh, so. Is um, uh, the Scottish right, uh, are they, they working with Grand Lodgell in terms of promoting the 200th anniversary? Does Scottish right have anything specific going on for the 200th anniversary? Or are they kind of taking the lead, obviously, from, from Grand Lodge. We're taking the lead from Grand Lodge. We really don't have a lot of stuff that we are doing ourselves, but we certainly support the Grand Lodge and you know get all the information out to our members also so that they can partake in what Grand Lodge is doing. Now, at the Master Craftsman classes, I, I had the chance to see you know your amazing library and archive collection um, the museum. I have had, uh, you know, the city of Windsor's uh, head archivist on um, because so many Masonic temples um, have, you know, uh, uh, minute books dating back hundreds of years and, and all this history. Um, just, you know, I think though, I, I don't think I've seen books in a Masonic temple or lodge or cathedral as old as the ones I saw a couple days ago. So just the the practical challenges, um, you know, of protecting these these you know historical treasures from whether it be the elements, water, moisture, humidity, um, you know, it's such a well maintained library and archive. Just talk about about that, the importance of maintaining it, how you guys maintain it, and and kind of having all that history kind of preserved. I know you're looking for a big fancy answer, but uh, once again, we do the best with what we have. That that space down there where the library is, and most of this building is not uh, controlled, atmosphere controlled. So when the humidity starts to get high, we'll put in dehumidifiers, stuff like that. But the temperature changes do definitely affect the library down there. Um, but it, it's controllable, it's just not perfect. Uh, if we had the money, we would definitely put it into HVAC in there to keep it cooled and damp-free. I mean, controllable is the key word though, right? It's right. just about pl planning things out, so the dehumidifiers, I certainly have seen a lot of your older books are in, in you know protective cases, right. right? They're not just out. I saw you had the gloves there. So if anybody wants to, you know, handle an older book, uh, it's protected. Um, have you had the chance to look through some of those particularly old books? And just what's it like seeing, you know, you mentioned names from like the 1800s and, and 17, you know, these, these, these 
these pieces of history. Do you get a chance to look at them a lot? And, and uh, just what does it feel like getting to to be a caretaker for some of these treasures? Well, believe it or not, I work in the building, and every time I walk into that library, I say I need to come down here more, uh, and I don't. I have looked through quite a few of the past record uh, books for minutes and stuff like that. Those are very impressive, uh, and I mean, we're some of them go back into the 1800s, so it, it's neat to see how they used to do it and. Uh, the amount of membership that would show up for a meeting as compared to now. Uh, so, yeah, I I don't get on the historical end of it as much as other people do, and that's why I'm not in charge of the library. But I think we all have that feeling of I need to, I certainly feel that way every time I through the Windsor Lodge or Windsor Temple archives of I need to, you know, spend more time with these and then you never get around to right. it. Um, yeah, it's definitely, it, it's a gorgeous library, and, and you're right. Every time I pick up a book, I'm just in awe of the history behind that book. I'm just in awe of the penmanship back then. Right. Couldn't type anything now. <laughs> everything gets tight, but back then it was all the, the cursive writing, and you can still still read it, though, and, and having the history of it yeah, really is. Yeah, I take minutes, it definitely all gets typed up and stored away. It's not my penmanship. Yeah, and and it's it's funny. It reminds you because it's, you know, it's so easy to. I'm secretary of Harmony Lodge, uh, five seventy nine. You know, it's funny how, you know, seeing those minutes from two hundred years ago, it kind of it reminds you of your minutes and that they're still going to be around in two hundred right. years, right? It's easy to think. I'll write my minutes out. This meeting, they'll be read out next meeting, and then they'll never be seen again. But, you know, you never know. that Those minutes could be picked up by a brother 200 years in the future, and, and what was Harmony Lodge up to right. in 2021, you know? So it just puts it all into historical context. It reminds you. And, you know, it's funny even thinking 200 years back, those secretaries taking those minutes, you know, what would they think if, if they knew that Cameron Adamson was, or, you know, looking at their minutes with the light of a smartphone and whatever right. it is. It's the, the, yeah, that's the amazing thing about the fraternity, right? One of the amazing things is just the his, history of it and how so much of it is preserved and really how it's not just Masonic history, but it's history that ties into the world. You know, Harry S. Truman right. being a Mason. And, and you mentioned he was, um, his office was just next door, right? Two doors that way. Well, that's, the, I know it's not a Masonic building anymore. It's what but... was called the New Masonic Temple, and it was dedicated in 1925, right after this building was. Did was do you know if uh, Brother Truman was a Scottish Rite Mason? Was he here? He was a Scottish Rite Mason, and yes, he's been in this building before. Do you have records of him in the, the like your your minute books and stuff? I'm guessing he was signing in. That I don't. I'm sure, but uh, I really don't know. I mean, Harry Truman was just. A man's man. I, he was of the people. Uh, he would go into lodge meetings and he wouldn't allow his secret service to come in with him. Uh, he was first and foremost a mason and lived his life as one. Uh, tell you a quick story, just right around the corner down on King's Highway is an absolutely beautiful lodge building uh, called Tuscan. And Harry Truman said that that was the most 
beautiful lodge room we'd ever been in. Uh, Tuscan. Tuscan Lodge. I'll have to see if I can check that out. It's it's really a magnificent little bitty lodge. It's not it's good size, but uh, it's just a really cool lodge. So then Truman, he was from Missouri. Oh yeah, yeah, he lived in Independence, Missouri. I actually saw him when I was a little kid. Cool. I, I lived out in the Kansas City area, and I used to see Truman out walking his dog. Well, I've heard he was the most active Masonic president in terms mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, both during his Masonic, both during his presidency and after he was, you know, attending lodge meetings far more frequently than, say, FDR or, or George Washington. Or Right. Do you think that that... Um, is that related, do you think, to, to Missouri in particular? Like, especially in the, the 40s, was Freemasonry um, very popular in Missouri? Was it like a well-known institution in the state? That would call for speculation because I was born in the 60s. But uh, I would say back then, Freemason was, was probably prevalent everywhere because you didn't have social media and television and all these other things to occupy your time, you left the house to be occupied. So I think anywhere you went back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, I think Freemasonry was probably the place to go. Yeah, and, and going back to the idea of, of, it was a place to go obviously for, for Masons or to become a Mason, but it was, you know, in a lot of ways, the center of a community, the Masonic Lodge. You know, I always reference um, no, it's, it's uh, Copperhead Road by um, Steve Earle. Anyway, it's the song Copperhead Road, right? He references in the song, uh, you know, that his father, you know, got his, purchased his car at a, a Masonic Lodge, at a, a, an auction there, right? But the fact that he can just reference that you know, it just shows how prevalent and, and how much a part of the communities these lodges were uh, and how often they were, people would attend. The, um, in terms of moving forward for Scottish Rite uh, and this building, I do want to mention, um, and if you want to talk about it at all, the really amazing cinematic reunions that you guys held. Um, you know, directed, directed right, by Johnny Royal, mm -hmm. by, uh, by brother Johnny Royal. Um, and I was really impressed with the reunions because they were done, you know, it, it's during COVID, everything is shut down, they're not able to have any meetings. Um, but still to be able to put on a virtual event of, of that quality and of that caliber and let people still not only, you know, take part in Freemasonry, but Scottish Rite in particular. Can you talk a bit about that cinematic reunion, how it came about, the organization that went into it, and the response from, from Masons who attended? Well, uh, just to square one, it was my bosses, our Sovereign Grand Inspector General's uh, vision of doing this virtual uh, reunion. Uh, he's the one that got permission from our Grand Lodge and from his boss, the Sovereign Grand Commander, uh, to even do this. Uh, so realizing that everything is 
communicated, but there was artwork behind it. I mean, the, the presentation was phenomenal. Um, I did have my hesitation at the beginning because we're putting something out on the internet. But we put enough out there to give the brethren that were joining a great understanding of the Scottish Rite. But they're still going to have to come here to get all of our secrets. Um, so I was involved in the filming of all this. But to see it presented on the big screen, it was absolutely amazing. I was floored by it. Uh, the amount of work that went into it. Uh, Bob Cockerham's son, Ryan Cockerham, did a phenomenal job with uh, helping on the editing. Uh, Bob Cockerham was kind of a co-producer, director. Uh, Johnny Royal was amazing to work with. His wife was amazing to work with. Um, and then all the brethren that came in to fill in the parts to really make it a success. It was just a really neat thing to be a part of. Um, but it, it, you have to think back, Albert Pike didn't sit in a hall like this and watch a play when he became a Scottish Rite Mason. Those degrees were communicated to him, which is exactly what we did during COVID, and it was the best way that we had to impart the information to the incoming brethren, but they still have a lot to learn just because they went through that. They're not done. Are you, uh, do you, do you think you're, you're, you're ever done? It, it seems like with oh, Freemasonry, done. No. with Freemasonry and Scottish Rite, and I'm sure York Rite, um, you know, it's amazing, you know, no matter how much you think you know, there's always so much more that you can learn. It's right. A, um, if you keep your eyes and your ears open, you'll always learn something. Do you think that that's, um, or I guess, how do you think the internet has affected that? Because one thing I'm, I'm noticing and concerned with is you'll get a, a new applicant, um, or I guess a new an, an applicant, new is redundant. You'll get an applicant and uh, uh, you'll be talking to them and you'll find out they've already, you know, gone on the internet and, and researched all this stuff. And in some cases, you know what what they researched is is you know uh, bullshit. Yeah, that's the that's the big danger of the internet too, right? Is there'll be some right stuff on the internet and some wrong stuff on the internet, and it's not always clear what is what. You got to be really careful and and know where the information is coming from. But um, you know, so they'll come in and they'll they'll have done all this research on their own, and they'll come in with this I idea that they've already kind of know everything, mm -hmm. as opposed to coming in. With you know some humility and a recognition that you know it's a, it's a it's not a Masonic degree it's a Masonic career and even when you're finished your Masonic career there's still more you're not going to know than that you're going to know. I've met a few guys that come in thinking they know everything, uh, but they're very few and far between that I've ever met. What I run into is the guys that say, "Yeah, I saw the good stuff and I saw the bad stuff, and I dug deep enough." to know that I'm interested in learning more. So I think that's really the majority of who you get after they do their internet research. And a lot of those guys, their grandpas, who they looked up to when they were four years old, their grandpa was wearing a Masonic ring. 
So that's really where that starts. And when you read all the bad stuff on the internet, you you have a, a reasonable man would think, is my grandpa really into that, or is this the misinformation? So I think a lot of reasonable men do do a lot of research, and I think they should. As you said, this is a lifelong commitment if you're really doing it right. So you should put some time and effort into it and at least know enough to know that you don't know anything, but you know the questions to ask once you get there and you're entitled to ask those questions. So I'm still learning every day and I've been in it since 78. I joined DMLA. Now DMLA is a, a a different message, it's a different set of rules, but you can also tell that it was written by a Scottish Rite Mason. So the ritual in Demolay really mirrors the lodge. So I spent my first how many years, eight years, just learning Demolay, only to go into lodge and say, this sounds vaguely familiar. So, uh, but then you got a guy that's 30 years old that was just starting his family and didn't have time to join Freemasonry when he was 21, but then started doing his research and got interested. So, Is that a, a, a problem that, that um, you guys are facing? It's one, it's one we're facing, I think, in Windsor and I'm guessing everywhere. You know, one of my biggest concerns is we'll get an applicant uh, and he'll be 21 years old and He'll, you know, maybe have a, a girlfriend or whatever it is, but he's, you know, on his way to starting a family mm -hmm. and he's on his way to starting a career. Um, and, you know, I always hesitate about whether or not it, it's the right time for them to join or whether we should accept them, not necessarily because they, they may be perfectly, you know, good men and, and reasonable, but, you know, the last thing you want is somebody to join and then be unable to attend for... 10, 20 years, you know, in some cases. And then it's like, yes, the lodge gets the dues, I suppose. But, you know, it, I've always believed that, you know, somebody's presence is more important than, than their physical presence is more important than their financial support, right? And maybe it's better if they wait until their kids are older, until their career is settled, and then they can actually not only join, but make a, a good time commitment to the craft. Well, I break that down into two thoughts. Number one, I don't know who has time and who doesn't. Um, I've always made time. I mean, my wife will tell you I was gone more than I was at home. Uh, my kids suffered a little bit of my time loss, but they also understood I had a job to do and that I was very involved in it. And my son actually became a DMLA, so he understood, my wife understood. She's active with me. She helps out wherever she can. Um, but at the age of 21, you're asking two different questions. Does he have time to become a member? Maybe. And like you said, maybe not. What I feel, more importantly, is he does not have time to be worshipful master. He does not necessarily have the time to go through the line and give to the lodge the same commitment he's giving to his family. He needs to get his family in order, he needs to provide for his family, needs to do his job, and then once he's established, he has time and experience to run a lodge. So 
I really don't like seeing 25-year-old worshipful masters that joined when they were 21 and they were sitting in the South when they were 23. I like the experience. Some lodges, they have to do that. And some guys are mature enough that they can do it. But I think they lose on some life experience doing it that way. Is it wrong? Maybe not for them. But you know, it's funny you bring up, um, you know, the 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 time commitment and and the challenge of that and family. But but I like what you said about because you know my my whole family are, are Masons. Both my grandfathers, um, great grandfathers, and then my my father. And you know, I remember growing up, um, especially you know when my dad was the worshipful master of his lodge. Um, I didn't find out until years later, but actually when he was worshipful master, they had a, a fire in their lodge room, so they had to find a new place to meet. And, you know, but he was he was very busy um, uh, with with his Masonic commitments. And I remember he was a, a shift worker. He worked for CN, the railroad. So he'd wake up at um, like 6 in the morning to get ready to go to work. Uh, and he'd be sitting at the kitchen table in my bedroom, it's just down the hallway, and I'd hear him talking to himself, you know, first thing in the morning at six, I'm lying in my bed thinking my dad's going insane. Of course, you know, you later learn he was practicing his work and his ritual for Freemasonry. But I do like what you said because, you know, there were times growing up where I'd miss him where he'd have a lot of lodge meetings, but, you know, then you get older, you know, I myself joined Freemasonry, and you recognize the importance of what he was doing and why it was important for him to be there. Um, and it makes it more special, because then he's there for your degrees. Um, you know, I think sometimes we people, especially in modern society, can forget that, right? Like, yeah, it may be, you may miss somebody in the moment, or you may miss a father in the moment, but as you get older, if you're mature, you recognize the importance of what he was doing, and you end up maybe taking part in it yourself. No, we're not here to just take care of our own family. I mean, that is very important, but uh, we're here to help where we can, and that doesn't necessarily just mean in our house. So I think that's what Freemasonry really does. We help everybody that we can. So if you're only focused on yourself, you're really not even going to be a Freemason. Absolutely, yeah, I agree. And sometimes um, I think... uh, you know, uh, family, not to cast aspersions, but, but family can sometimes become an easy excuse for, for, for Masons. And not just Masons, but people in general, right? If they don't want to go out one night because they're just tired or whatever it is, they can always say, I got to be with my wife or whatever right. it is. It does seem sometimes I suspect that that can be the case in some, in some instances. Um, but I do like what you said, right? And, and I think that's really important because something I've often emphasized is you know, the, the benefit and the value of somebody's presence. You know, I'm sure you've seen it where the lodge has a degree and a mason is saying, well, I don't have any work to do in the degree. I don't have any parts, so I don't need to be there. But even if that mason maybe doesn't want to attend, when the candidate looks around the room, even if you know he sees a row of Masons who didn't themselves take part in the degree, just for that candidate to see them there and to know that they were present, um, you know, it helps the candidate feel important and feel special, and it 
it's one of those things where, you know, that's an instance where it's not about you and it's not about I can do the work, I, I, I have a part to play. It's about you're taking the time and your presence just to be there for that guy. So I don't know if you've experienced the same things. Just the importance of, of just the importance of being present, even if you don't necessarily have work to do. Oh, I, I think that's important in all aspects. You know, if you show up to a reunion and you have a 3,000-seat auditorium and you have 20 people sitting in the seats and 15 of them are candidates, those candidates see that. Uh, as you're saying, just the entered apprentice coming into Lodge when they're brought to light and they look around, wow, there's a room full of guys. He has no idea what they were doing. He may think every single person in that room had a part in the ritual and that's what it took to get it done. He doesn't care. He sees support from a community that he's wanting to be involved in. And if he sees that when he's first brought to light, I think that's going to kind of govern his Masonic career in the future. He's going to be that guy that's going to be there. Last night at the Lodge of Instruction, I was Worshipful Master two years ago. I'm not going there for the ritual. I'm going there just to support the guys from my lodge, to meet guys from other lodges. And if somebody can't fill a chair, which is going to slow down the ritual practice, I can step in and fill the chair. I don't really need to practice because I'm not going to do it again. But I'm there to show support for the new incoming officers that need to learn how to run their lodges. And if I sit on the sideline every lodge of instruction, I'm fine with that. But there's going to be one time where somebody needs somebody to fill in a chair and I can help out. and It, it helps the other guys. So it's all about not what, what I can do for myself or what I'm going to gain out of it. It's how can I help the fraternity. Absolutely. And that's why I always, you know, one thing I always suggest to a, a candidate, um, you know, when they're done with their degree, um, I'm sure it's the same in most jurisdictions, you know, in Ontario, uh, the candidate is given a chance to, to speak on each of his degrees and, and, you know, say his thank yous or say whatever he wants to say. Um, you know, I always recommend that, you know, the candidate you know, yes, you want to take a moment to thank the degree team and the worship of master, but also just thank the brethren who are attending because they may have had a family commitment or, or they may have had a long day at work mm -hmm. or whatever it is, but, you know, just their, their presence there is such an important thing um, that, you know, you want to make sure you're thanking them as well just for, for the time uh, uh, to be there. Um, have you... Uh, uh, in, your, in, in St. Louis Masonic Lodges, do you find uh, a lot of com combinations between business meetings and um, degrees? Like, do you have the same members coming for both? I notice sometimes in, in Ontario we tend to have fairly good turnouts for degrees, but not as good turnouts for business meetings. You'll probably find that here. The one thing that I really like about Missouri, and I'm sure it's the same in other states, uh, Let's just say my lodge is going to do a third degree on Monday. And we put out an email. You would be surprised at the number of visiting brethren that will come in to help out. Nice. And that's, that's one thing I've always liked about Missouri. You, you know who's going to come in. 
And, uh, you know, one lodge may not be able to do the whole thing, but when you put the call out, it's going to get done. It's going to get done right, and it's, it's very impressive to watch. And, and that just goes to show the, the value of traveling, right? Right. We, we sometimes think of traveling as, like what I'm doing now, right? Uh, Windsor, Ontario to St. Louis, to, to Nashville, to wherever. But, um, you know, so the Windsor Masonic Temple, we have seven lodges that meet there, different nights of the week. You know, if your mother lodge is Windsor, but you decide to also visit Harmony, which meets on a Thursday, like that's traveling. Mm-hmm. Right. It doesn't always have to mean a separate building. It's just a separate lodge. And right. like you said, the, the value of, of traveling, it's important for the Mason, but it's also important for the lodge, which he's visiting. Um, do, you, do you find you have a good, good amount of visitation between lodges? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, like last night, walking into Lodge of Instruction, which is open to our district. It's really funny to walk in and go, I've seen that guy before. And then you just strike out the conversation and you realize, you know, you introduce yourselves and you know what lodge each other's from and it just expands. So if you're, if you're joining Freemasonry and you're just sticking to your lodge, you're going to get that experience, but I don't think it's as full as your experience is if you travel. Now, this is, uh, I've not brought this up before on this podcast. Uh, so congratulations, you're, you're the first. But well, this is honored. this is an idea, and I, it's something I've implemented in my mother lodge when I was worshipful master. Um, but I thought of it because of our conversation about records and archives. Um, and I don't know, I'm just curious, maybe if there's no such thing as a new idea in Freemasonry. So I'm guessing someone else has thought of this before. But um, it's something I, I did, and we've still got them. And I'll bring this up because maybe somebody watching this or you or Missouri can try to implement something similar. Um, I'm sure that in Missouri, you guys have your your pins, your 25-year pin, mm-hmm. right? Um, it is, does it go here 25, 50, 60? I'm not sure what the increments are, but that's probably about right. It seems to me like I received a 30-year pin not too long ago. So I think we may have every, like, 10 years or something. So. Okay. Um, in, so in Ontario, our big one is 20, well, our big one would be like 50 or 60, but, you know, 25 is the first milestone right. that's recognized with a pin. And uh, what I did as Worshipful Master is I had all of the applicants or all of the candidates, when they received their first degree, um, after they were done, um, I would instruct them that they each had to write a letter uh, addressed to themselves. So John Smith, it would be like, Dear John Smith. And they could write anything they wanted in that letter, whether it be about the degree, about Freemasonry, about their life at the time. It didn't matter what it was because that letter would then be sealed and placed in an envelope, and the envelope would have the date of their 25th uh, anniversary and give it to the lodge for safekeeping. And then when they receive their 25-year pin, not only do they receive the pin, but they receive the letter back, uh, remaining unopened. And they can either open it in the lodge and read it, or they can read it at home, whatever they want to do with it. Um, that's just So that's just an idea I've had. Unfortunately, it kind of went away. Uh, it, it existed for my years, Worshipful Master, um, but it didn't uh, really continue, unfortunately, which I, I like it too. But I don't know if you've ever heard of that being done anywhere else, or if you have any thoughts on that as a... Uh, 
a Masonic project or something for other lodges to consider, right? The biggest challenge is just making sure that the lodge has a safe place to keep those letters right. for the 25 years so they can be returned. Um, and obviously, the letters can follow a, a Mason. So if a Mason moves for work and joins a different lodge, you know, you can mail the letter to the new lodge with the information about what it is in the project. Oh, I, I think it's an absolutely amazing idea. Um, I do remember doing that when I was a kid in school. Our teachers had us write a letter and I don't remember when we got when we got it back or whatever, but uh, yeah, I, I I can only imagine the benefit of a 21-year-old me writing to a 36-year-old me. I never thought of it. That, that's a great idea. Well, anybody, if any lodges are doing that, uh, leave a comment. Let me know because I can't imagine I'm the first one to think of it um, because it does happen in school. It, you know, any. Any endeavor that has a very, that is a career, right? That's not a one and done, but right. you know, you can be a Mason for 25, 50, 60, 70 years. Um, you know, it seems just to make sense that you have some type of letter or recognition of the time passing beyond just a pin, like something personal to you. Kind of like your boss saying, where do you see yourself in five years? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I do like the, the idea that the letter stays sealed, right? Because it is oh, something. personal. Yeah. yeah. I mean, some brethren may wear I was Worshipful Master the first time in 2015, so our earliest letter uh, isn't slated to be opened until 2040, um, which sounds crazy to say, right? 20, 2040. But we have a, a raft of brothers who will be receiving pins at that time and getting the letters back. So, yeah. It, you know, that's another but nice thing about this podcast and about traveling is sharing of ideas, right. you know. Uh, is there anything you you found in Missouri Freemasonry or Missouri Scottish Rite um, that you haven't seen seen elsewhere or, or anything that you particularly, just for, for a Mason visiting, like what are some of the things that you really like about uh, Missouri uh, Freemasonry? I really don't have an answer for that because I haven't visited a whole lot of lodges outside of Missouri, so I don't know what the difference is between our state and another state. I have visited a lot of places, but I've never traveled to another lodge and actually met uh, and seen their ritual. So what I see on a daily basis is just what I'm used to, so I, I don't have an answer for what's different. What about what, what speaks to you about it most? Uh, is it the, the buildings and your history with the with the buildings is it the history more in general the archives like what is it if somebody had to, to ask you you know I know this is a hard question you know what is it about Freemasonry that has kept you around since 1978 well DMLA was a whole nother world uh, so you know you're, you're talking to 13 year old me as compared to 56 year old me I will tell you my favorite part of Freemasonry is in this building. And it has absolutely nothing to do with the ritual. It has nothing to do with the architecture. Uh, it has nothing to do with the history of this building. Um, if you ask me what my favorite part of Freemasonry is, I will tell you it is sitting in the lounge with 20 or 30 other brothers uh, and having a conversation until 3 o'clock in the morning. And 
as you said earlier, the exchange of ideas. At 3 o'clock in the morning, in this building, in that lounge, you can talk about anything you want to. We're told not to talk about politics. We're told not to talk about religion in our lodge meetings. But in this building, and I guess in any building, but with trusted brethren, you can talk about all that. And you can learn about the Jewish religion. You can learn about the Catholic religion. I've learned so much about other religions. And I've said it before, we have had conversations in this building that in other parts of the world would have started wars. But at 3 o'clock in the morning, we shake hands and we go home. We're still brothers. And we have gotten a grasp of somebody else's idea of the world. And it comes to the biggest word in Freemasonry is tolerance. And I don't think enough people appreciate that word tolerance. I think they think they're tolerant, but they still have a preconceived notion of how this world should be. There's a reason there's so many religions out there. I don't think any one of them is correct. I think they're all correct. And I think if they could all come together and talk, we would really find out what the answer is. So you asked me the most important part to me about Freemasonry. It's those talks at 3 o'clock in the morning. Those are very important parts of the craft for sure. Um, and I think that that is a very good place uh, to leave it. Thank you so much for you know your time. I really appreciate it. I just appreciate how... how you, you mentioned at the start how, how you know convenient and easy you made it, right? I got in touch, right. sent an email, uh, I got a response back the same day. You know, I was welcomed here. Um, you agreed to, to sit down and talk to me. So I'll, I'll throw the information in the description, but if anybody is looking to check out this building or even rent this building, it's, you know, if they're from the St. Louis area, uh, what's the, the contact info? Uh, the best is just my email address, exec. E-X-E-C at scottishright-stl.org. Perfect. And our website is uh, www.scottishright-stl.org. Awesome. And I'll throw that down in, in the description so people can find it. Uh, like, comment, subscribe, do all that good stuff um, on the podcast, Patreon, all, all the things you're supposed to do to help the podcast. Please help the podcast. And thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. And now